My name is Stephen Toop, and I am the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cambridge. Unprecedented is the word that people are using again and again and again under these circumstances, an unprecedented number of times, you could even say, Stephen. How is this predicament affecting the University of Cambridge? Like everyone around the world, it's having a profound effect. Uh, Obviously, we've had to move uh, most of our students uh, off uh, campus, out of our colleges, which is, of course, a fundamental decision for a place that is so rooted in its history in this part of the world. Uh, We've also, of course, had to close down uh, most of our labs, other than ones that are working directly on uh, coronavirus research, and that is a a huge issue for our brilliant researchers who are frustrated not to be able to uh, do the work that they want to work on all of the other important things that face uh, humankind. Uh, We're also uh, looking at the potential for enormous financial impact, uh, which could be destabilizing for the entire higher education uh, system, including for Cambridge, over the course of the next uh, couple of years. Indeed, that is a sentiment echoed by equivalent vice-chancellors and deputy vice-chancellors at universities all around the world. I spoke to one deputy vice-chancellor for research at a university in Australia who was telling me some institutions there are looking at shortfalls of half a billion dollars. How exposed is Cambridge? Well, we're doing uh, that analysis right now. And of course, uh, we have to be frank that a lot of this depends upon the extent and duration of the economic downturn Uh, that is resulting from uh, the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, We certainly estimate uh, the potential for hundreds of millions of pounds of lost income over the course of the next couple of years, um, up to the next four years. Uh, But there are upsides and there are downside scenarios. And, uh, you know, at this point, it's really hard to tell exactly what number might be right. And is that just reflecting lost revenue from fees, or is that other sources of income lost as well? It's a combination. Uh, Obviously, it does represent the potential for uh, fee uh, income to go down, particularly if there is a smaller cohort of international students. Uh, It also represents uh, loss of income uh, for rental of accommodation for the colleges of Cambridge and other universities would experience uh, similar loss of income. In our case, uh, we're fortunate enough to have an endowment. So it's also uh, contemplating a reduction in the payout from the endowment as uh, the uh, financial crisis affects all all endowments around the world. And in the particular case of Cambridge, we also, of course, have Cambridge Assessment, which does uh, language testing and exams all around the world, none of which is happening at this point, and Cambridge University Press, uh, which is also seeing uh, a remarkable downturn in orders, as you would uh, not be surprised to learn. And both the press and assessment have supported the university uh, over many, many years, and they may not be in a position to do that certainly as much for the next few years. At the moment, obviously, institutions like Cambridge rely very heavily on an overseas trade in students. Education is, is a major export success for the UK. How is that going to change? Well, I hope it's too early to say how it's going to change, quite frankly, but there's certainly a a likelihood in the short term that there will be a reduction in the number of international students traveling anywhere in the world. This is not just a UK phenomenon. 
Uh, however, there are particular issues that we might want to think about carefully in the UK. I'm aware, for example, that there's a perception, fair or not, in other parts of the world that the UK was slow in its response to coronavirus and perhaps hasn't been as forceful enough in addressing uh, the challenges of the virus. And therefore, we've got, you know, families out of uh, India or families out of China saying, is the UK a safe place to go? So one of the things that we're going to have to do is make sure that our public uh, communications around how the country is going to deal with the virus going forward is communicated as clearly as possible, uh, even outside the borders of the UK. Of course, in the longer term, we don't know whether this will play out as a changing dynamic fundamentally with more people, for example, wanting to do online courses, or whether this will turn out to be a more temporary uh, pause in what has been an extraordinary growth in international uh, students uh, all around the world. Now, if the emphasis does shift online, at least in the short term, how are you going to make sure that, say, your institution versus any other institution, and, and I'm sure vice chancellors are going to be saying the same thing wherever they are heading, but how are you going to make sure your institution retains what's special about it? Because some people could say, well, if it's online, I could go elsewhere. Uh, I think that's a, a really fair question. And it's something that's going to confront every university around the world. Uh, but I think you're probably right to say it might confront uh, Cambridge even more forcefully because we have always said uh, that Cambridge is very much a place-based experience. And of course, we've really highlighted the role of the colleges at Cambridge in that uh, extraordinary support uh, and rich uh, life that is offered up to our students. Um, so that is a challenge, but I will say that one of the things that has struck me, uh, and perhaps I'm, I'm being uh, unduly optimistic here, but I do think that our history of great experience with supervisions is actually going to stand Cambridge in good stead online, because we're actually used to delivering large parts of our um, teaching uh, on uh, in smaller groups or single groups uh, and I think that that actually lends itself extremely well to online education. So in some strange sense, that part of what we do, which is a core element of Cambridge, is not fundamentally changed. We can use all of these wonderful technologies that have exploded uh, to allow our uh, supervisors, our, our teachers, to interact uh, as directly, almost as if they were in person, with small groups of people online, uh, conducting a very similar kind of dialogue that would happen in the supervision. So I think that's actually a, a strange asset for, for Cambridge. The other point I'd make is that I'm so aware of, of organizations across the university that are trying to find a way to make sure that the student experience is not lost. We're obviously doing that with mental health provision, uh, counseling services, disability services. All of that has gone online and is accessible to our students. But in addition, uh, you know, at a, perhaps a more uh, lighthearted level, all sorts of organizations like our radio stations, uh, the Cambridge Union is going online. Uh, the ADC Theatre has uh, launched online provision. The only place where it seems to be really difficult to figure out how to provide uh, activities is in sport. Uh, but we're going to put our mind to that. Esports, I suppose, springs to mind. But um, you mentioned this a bit earlier, which is that with a place like Cambridge, one of the world's best research centres for science, how on earth 
are we going to carry on doing cutting-edge research when laboratories are shut, people are having to do science at their kitchen table? This is actually one of my greatest worries. I think it's a huge issue, not just for Cambridge, but indeed for the world. Uh, there has been a, a very substantial pause in a lot of lab-based research. Of course, our colleagues are, are, are ingenious and they've gone off and they've been writing grant applications and they've been processing numbers and, and, and doing whatever work they can do on computer, but it isn't the same as running your actual lab work. And so we, we do have to find a way as quickly as possible to get people back into uh, labs and libraries. Uh, because if we don't, uh, we're going to have a, a real pause on absolutely fundamental research. I mean, think about research related to, uh, to cancer, for example, that is, is largely not happening in the same way that it was previously. Uh, again, I know people are going online and doing as much as they can and sharing data, but we've got to get people back into the lab. And so we've already started looking very, very carefully in a detailed way at how we can open up labs as soon as the social distancing rules shift and, and the sort of lockdown is no longer fully in place. But we're going to have to do it carefully and with uh, absolute uh, precision in thinking about the health and well-being of our staff members. Indeed. Many people, though, are on time-limited funding. Now, have you had conversations with grant awarding bodies? What are they saying to you about the clock ticking for for researchers, but also PhD students, because many of those are on a very limited timescale and their career is really going to get hit quite hard, isn't it? So what reassurance can we offer them? Well, we've been looking at that very carefully. And of course, I am delighted to note that uh, UKRI, the Wellcome Trust and, and other major funders have already announced uh, funding extensions, uh, both for uh, PhDs and uh, for um, uh, postdocs, uh, researchers who are working on uh, project-based funding. Uh, that only goes for, let's say, six extra months, and it's usually for PhDs only so far for PhDs in their third year. Uh, the university is uh, doing its very best to match exactly that kind of process. We've already made that announcement to a lot of our PhD students. Uh, some of our uh, trusts that uh, fund PhDs are looking at slightly different models, but everyone understands that we're going to have to provide uh, forms of additional support. Um, I think that the real question for PhDs will be what happens, say, to first years and second years who've been delayed. We haven't yet uh, fully addressed that problem because we've had to think about people who are meant to graduate. But we will have to look at a first and second year PhDs for researchers. Uh, Clearly, uh, we've made the decision to extend contracts uh, funded by the university unless we receive backup support from others uh, till the 31st of July. But thereafter, we're obviously going to have to take a very careful look. We can't pay people indefinitely uh, if they can't do the work. So this is really important that the government be thinking about how it is that we hold together research teams as well. It can't all fall on uh, existing university resources because they will be expended. And that's a critical point you've raised there, isn't it? Because most PIs, lab group heads, will say, it's taken me a really long time to get critical mass with this dream team of people. I've brought them together, got the funding. We're working on these projects. Things are really moving apace. Now my team's going to disintegrate. 
Uh, I'm talking with uh, advisors at number 10. I'm talking with uh, the uh, ministry to which we report. I'm talking to the Department for Education on this issue constantly. And I, I am happy to say that there's a real consensus, at least in the UK, across the university sector, that this is a fundamental issue. There was a, a, a very good uh, paper from uh, UUK that went to the uh, United Kingdom government, uh, uh, really setting out why universities needed some support in the short term. And this question of holding together the research effort over the next few months is absolutely fundamental because we are going to be part of the solution to the rebooting of the UK economy, which is going to have to focus on research and innovation. I think we've learned that in this crisis. And if our teams are already degraded, we're not going to be able to make the contribution we need to make. The, the good news here, I think, is that the government had previously committed to a very dramatic expansion of research funding over the course of the next few years. And in a sense, I think all the government has to do is front and load some of that funding to make sure that we hold this infrastructure together so that it can really uh, be up and running and deployed as quickly as possible when we're out of the immediate elements of this crisis. So is Cambridge going to be open for business in the autumn? because there's going to be lots of students that uh, have worked very hard on their A-levels and so on, and they're very much looking forward to embarking on their Cambridge career. Where do they stand at the moment? Uh, well, of course, a lot of that will depend in its details on the plan that the United Kingdom government ultimately releases in terms of how we're going to move out of the current lockdown. But the short answer to your question is, of course, we will be open. The issue will be, will we be open uh, in person or will we still operating in large measure online? And it's very hard to answer that question right now. There may be some combination of uh, social distancing that doesn't allow us to have a full complement in Cambridge at any given moment. We may have to think about uh, people coming in and out. We may have to set priority for certain kinds of students that need to do hands-on work. These are all questions that we've got to work through in various scenarios over the course of the next few weeks. But we will certainly be open and we will certainly be welcoming a new cohort of students one way or another. I bet you didn't anticipate this when you stepped into your vice-chancellor's job, did you? No, I sure didn't. Uh, but uh, one has to try to deal with the cards that are dealt one. And, uh, you know, we're all in this together. I, I, I have to say that my colleagues across the university and the colleges and the university, the departments, the faculties, the schools have been fantastic in rising to the challenge. And I have every reason to think they'll continue to do so. <laughs> 